another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Miller McFadden. I hope you're all well. I hope your uh, your last week has has been good and that uh, yeah you've, you've uh, been having a good time, making contact with friends and and family. And uh, yeah, we love hearing from you guys. Got some fantastic reviews. We really appreciate it. Mike, how you doing, mate? What's going on in your side of the world? This side of the world is pretty good. I'm uh, currently home in Yensburg and uh, had a last uh, last few days have been really fun. Uh, lots of family and friends time. And uh, yeah, just, I literally just got back from uh, being out on, on the boat in the river and flying around. And uh, as I was telling you, we uh, may have taken out some Canadians uh, on the water, meaning uh, Canadian geese. Sometimes they move, sometimes they don't move. I mean, <laughs> just trying to make it back. But yeah. Uh, it's fine because uh, yesterday was the 4th of July here here in the U.S. And uh, it is an American holiday and there was no room for those Canadians. So <laughs> I was yelling at them. We were down at, down at the Point State Park uh, out in the boat at Anchor, just having quite a few frothies and some barbecue and everything else that we made up. And everybody's floating, having a good time, music and everything. And uh, yeah, there was some... Uh, very colorful people to say the least getting a little getting a little wild so that was fun but uh it was definitely good to be home that was my first uh, fourth of july i've got to celebrate and i want to say five or six years so and uh, we had front row seats right to the whole show uh right down in uh, downtown pittsburgh so i had a great time spent time with my brother uh some of my other brothers came down family was coming down i jumped off the boat like boris gump when he's waving and just runs off and the boat keeps going <laughs> Uh, I, pu- I pulled one of those and swam into shore and hugged everybody and was talking. Then I jumped in, swam back, had a frothy. You know, it was good, man. We got a uh, we got a very quick uh, call, a quick little video chat with Mike yesterday. Uh, Jerry and I, so we saw him and his brother out in the river. It was bloody beautiful breweries and baseball stadiums and football stadiums with the Stillers. Right. It looked great. Just for the uh, listeners, we've got we've got one member of the team is missing. Tio Raff is actually on a uh, a bit of a compassionate call with a soldier at the moment. So if he's able to join us, he will. Otherwise, you know, or you might hear him jump in later. But you know, this is what we do, and uh, someone needed him, so he's he's otherwise tied up. But standing in for uh, a man from south of the border, we've got a guy from the northern part of the world, a mate of my Irishman who uh, I played rugby with out here in. Uh, Saudi for many years, and he's now living in Dubai. How are you going there, Mark? Good, man. Good to see you guys. Catch up at last. We had a bit of pre, pre-chat pre banter, which was good, yeah. Talked about the arts and there was... culture. <laughs> Religion, art galleries, yeah. cathedrals. Just just for the listeners, I, I introduced Mark to the boys on our uh, a little chat group, and it was just the heaviest banter I've ever seen from kickoff. It was, it was pretty horrendous. We've had to have a little chat about how, how how bad does the language get on the on the airwaves? And we're like, <laughs> we'll have to wind it back a bit. But um, Mark and I played rugby. It must have been five or six years ago, even longer than that, that we started. Hey, Mark, and had many uh, tours together. A couple of big memorable games over in Dubai, and uh, 
Mark's a, a nurse there in Dubai and he's, he's been there for several years now. So why don't you just tell, us, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, mate? Where are you from? What you do? Yeah, so uh, a nurse, yeah, by training. Um, trained in Dublin uh, back in the early, early 90s. Um, spent a few years there uh, <clears throat> working in the emergency department in one of the big city centre hospitals. Uh, got a bit of itchy feet, so uh, that brought me over your side of the world. Spent a bit of time in New Zealand and uh, a lovely town called Kalgoorlie on the west coast of Australia, uh, looking at miners' fingers that have been chopped off. They had the, allegedly the highest rate of amputations in the world for a tiny little, oh. tiny little two-bed, four-bed resus, two-bed main area, whatever, hospital. So it was pretty cool. And then uh, took the jump to Saudi, where I met you. Uh, three years there in a big hospital. Um, Which year, what year was that, Mark? What year was that? Oh, you're asking now. Um, so what would that have been? 2012 maybe does that make sense yeah i reckon yeah yep. 2012 maybe uh so spent three years there and then uh got a job over here and uh loving it since 10 years in the middle east what can you ask for and so are you still playing rugby and or gaelic footy or any of that sort of stuff uh, what does it look like to you eh it's uh, <laughs> it's all gone a bit soft here eh um, no, it's it's all still shut down. This COVID thing is kind of has kind of ruined it for us a little bit. So um, when it comes back, I'll be a vet. So I'll be seeing you on the other side of the pitch, mate. That's where vet, that's where the rugby really starts. You got to you got to keep playing well past the point when my, your mates haven't just stopped, but their kids are sort of looking at stopping, and you're still playing. That's that's where it's good. And so we got you on markers. You've you've got a a breadth of experience in areas that sort of appeal to certainly the three of us on here. And we know that a lot of our listeners will be interested in this stuff. So I know you've got a, a whole lot of background and insight in the areas of critical incident debriefing, choices in pressure scenarios and critical incident learning. So would you be able to maybe give us a bit of an overview on what those topics are and where you maybe got your training in, the, in those areas? Yeah. So like I said, I've kind of worked around the world a little bit and, um, uh, my, my, my specialty is trauma and uh, well emergency and trauma and I've done quite a bit of uh, work as an instructor teaching other nurses and, and physicians some of those skills and um, but within that within that training it, it, it's not just the <clears throat> it's not just the um, the psychomotor skills the, the using of your hands and you know um, just just doing a task a huge amount of it, of it is the is the cognitive side of it as well um, and um, the the background that your kind of mind plays during critical incidences and how to how to kind of um, break down a situation, a really complex situation, into simple steps. But then, of course, you know we're we're working in kind of a field where you're you're seeing people sometimes on their worst day, and uh, it's not always um, it's not always kind of the the best situation that they come into and it can put you under pressure as well especially if there's family around or you know if there's young kids involved in a situation and mistakes happen but my role switched from bedside to to education and part of the role of education was to kind of break down these incidents that happen or you know situations that didn't go so well and try and um, kind of pick up the pieces for the for the team maybe afterwards and see how we could do things do things better so i've been in an education role in, in one form or another for the last maybe seven years 
right. most of my most of my learning has kind of come from experience and reading a lot about kind of different things and just really just chatting to people <laughs> we're irish we love to chat you know what i mean and you know different walks of life can give you different sorts of insights so like obviously there's a lot of pilots here that you kind of can rub shoulders with at a bar and you know just picking their brains on some stuff and then going back and reading reading about it and um, I, I wrote a paper on uh, lived experiences as well so that kind of um that kind of helped as well i'm, I'm no psychologist by any manner of means but you know just trying to get myself read up on on stuff and the the idea of writing about people's lived experiences and um, interests me a lot you know um and yeah i'll tell you more a little bit later on about the stories i have and kind of the experiences that kind of have influenced me to to do this kind of work so is this a, is this like a specific recognized area that people get qualifications in and that health professionals can go and get training and certification and stuff mark or is this just you've had an interest and you've explored it and now you're running uh you're instructing in this area so the instructorship, like you've got AHA, American Heart Association, I'm sure you've heard of it. You know, you, you learn a little bit about debriefing as you do those instructor courses. Um, there are simulation organizations out there who cover a lot of that stuff as well. And I can get you, I can get you names of societies out there, but there's the European SIM organ, uh, society. Uh, there's American ones as well. And um, they kind of bring you through different types of, de of debriefing processes there's there's quite simple ones and um, you know you can look at things like uh, plus delta what went right what can we change or you know a bit more in depth there's there's other sort of structures and systems you can use so you can do courses on it absolutely yeah i think this is already like i'm just sitting here listening I'm, my mind's going 100 miles an hour trying to think about different scenarios and we kind of prepped before the show uh bringing up a couple instances and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your experience mark that you wanted to share um <clears throat> but i think debriefing is so important uh, i know in real world you know you're looking at each stages there's pre-mission planning there's uh the actual brief um you know insert infill actions on target exfil and extract and the, you know, the five main phases, but then I'm always just like debriefing is another phase that needs, it should be required, but I have seen people that don't do it enough. And it's not just tactics and like, Hey, what we're right, what we're wrong, but a whole aspect that, you know, you're kind of bringing up is, you know, why did you react the way you did? What, what were you thinking about in the moment? You know, uh, you know, the emotional side, the, the, the mental side, whatever. And I don't, I don't know if that's ever, truly hit on more than like hey how did the target go down you know what i mean like how did this go but afterwards it's like hey man that was really rough you know are you debriefing the person or are you debriefing like the whole team as it, it, you know you know what i'm saying it's i don't think it's just i don't think it's that specific so so i suppose if you break it down you can't have a team without a person or people so you you, you do both um so I suppose let's just get right into it. So, so the way we usually do it is we, we, we pull the team together after the situation. And the very first thing we do is, is we recap the situation. So what happened? And this will lead into something a little bit later on, but did everybody see the situation the same way? That's, that's the first reason you want to do it. You want to recap the situation because you may have, you may have a, a ED physician with 30 years experience under his belt 
you may have the the mid career uh, nurse who's you know 10 years well experienced very well to do and you may have a brand new trainee in the room with you now each of them are going to look at this situation potentially from different aspects so the doctor might be thinking one way the lead nurse might be thinking another way and the the trainee might just be going oh my god this is the worst situation i've ever been in my life and so that's the first thing you got to do. You got to get consensus on what happened. And even at that early stage, if there's not consensus, that's a, that's an area to look at. So why were people not looking at things in, in the same way? What was it? Was there a knowledge gap? Was there an experience gap? Was there confusion over what we were trying to do? Um, and that's, that's kind of where we start off. So what does, does that make Yes, it does. I, my question is what type of setting do you do this in? Is this in a classroom with like a whiteboard to record and write things as they come out so people can like see a timeline or, hey, you know, write notes or like these are the main points of kind of what happened? Or is this some other structure? So there's two types of ways of doing it. We, we, we can do it in a simulation environment, which is super safe. Um, and that's one thing we always strive to do is make these simulation as realistic as possible, but as safe as possible. So we use mannequins and stuff like that. And we sure do. We write down... We write down times, dates, actions, um, and we, we follow it chronologically. We usually have what we call a recorder who just documents everything that's going on. Um, we can also do what we call hot debriefs. So actually a, a clinical scenario has unfolded um, and as, as close to the scenario that's happened on the floor, like in real life, we try and pull the team together and uh, get, a, get a consensus as to what happened and, and quickly debrief it. So that's known as a hot debrief for us. Okay. Oh, that, that, that's, that's good, man. I, I kind of like that with, uh, you know, like you said, using the mannequins is like, Hey, where were you? What did you do and have and talk through and, uh, and then you could almost see the mis if there was a mistake or something wrong. It's like, okay, why did you do that? And then it can explain to it. And it's like, that's why a B and C happened. I, I like that. that. That's good. Basically a walkthrough debrief. Pretty, that's pretty much it. And I, that kind of leads into it. So that would be the next step. So you look at uh, <laughs> my, my, my mentor in this used to used to say, uh, when you're looking at a, a, a scenario, you're, you're watching people go through things or, you know, even a real life um, issue comes across your desk as paperwork and you think WTF, what the, you know? Yeah. And she used to say to me, whoa, 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 whoa. Every, that's your initial reaction, you know, and you want to be like, Christ, what were they thinking? That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Why would they do that? Um, uh, Mina is her name, and uh, she's just been an unbelievable mentor. But she says, change the W, you know, what the, uh, to uh, what's the frame? That person. So a frame is kind of um, a belief system or a, a cognitive structure in their mind that that person believes in. So they did that action with a firm belief and logical reason that it was the right thing to do. So you ask the questions, hey, um, as you just said, Mike, um, hey, I noticed when this happened, you did this action. Tell me what you were thinking. And you leave it, you leave it sit open and, you know, and uh, see what comes back. And nine times out of 10, people have a, a general logical step and you can see the reasoning behind what they're doing but maybe it just wasn't the right action in that context because they've never been there before. Or, you know, the, the old adage of that's the way we've always done it. 
yeah or you know they've got um or you know they just don't maybe there's a knowledge gap and that's that's our job to that's our job to pull it out I, th I, th I really like that because I think a lot of times the most experienced person always wants to lead it off either because, hey, we don't have enough time. And it's just like, hey, I'm the, I'm in charge. I'm going to debrief the whole thing. I'm going to give my perspective. Has everybody got it? Cool. Good. Hey, you're wrong, by the way. All right. Continue. You know, it's, uh, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate that. You know, you're really professional a-hole. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> I like that approach, though, because it, it encourages everybody to uh, participate and say their piece. Hey, what were you thinking about? Go through their process, like you said, at their level of being a new person, a mid-level person, or a high-level person. Um, I really like that method. Go ahead, Melon. When you're doing, when you're doing the hot debrief, I can get, I understand with the, the recorder in the simulation there, Mark, they take the, you've got a person who's independent, able to take notes, and I'm assuming that they're going to be helping with a debrief. When you're doing it in the hot debrief for a real scenario, how do you gather that same information on who leads it? Is it the person in the team who's had the training in this critical incident debriefing or is there a person comes in to assist? Yeah, so ideally, the ideal situation is that, you know, I would come into the, to the area and, and help with it if I'm around. But um, most of the time, we, what we've done is we've just set up a, an A4 sheet with kind of questions to ask that can kind of guide people. Now, that's not ideal. Because there is a skill uh, that you develop over time on, on how to kind of pick on points and uh, how to extrapolate more information that, you know, you, you can see. So it, it just depends on, what, like, you can't be anywhere 24-7, you know what I mean? So what we did was we developed just a, a, a debrief sheet. And you can find them online if anybody's interested out there, you know, just look up uh, hot debriefing sheets. They do lots of them in pediatric emergencies. Um, there's all sorts of different templates and styles out there. But we'll put a link in our show notes to one that you use, Mark, so that people can see the kind of thing you're talking about. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I'll pull up a few, no problem. Um, so in know, the hospital, we have we have a couple of people spaced around in the teams who've got this critical incident debriefing skill set, and that you're just you're hoping to have one of them involved in the incident who can then do the wash up afterwards. Yeah, we, we try to, um, it, it, it hasn't quite got to that level yet. <laughs> Obviously like resources at the moment are, are pretty, are pretty stretched, but, uh, what we, what we tend to do is we, we, we also bring the simulation to the clinical areas. So we won't tell the clinical area. We'll take a mannequin. We'll throw it into a room. We'll hit the code button. Uh, we we'll record the whole event and see what happens. <laughs> so that's pretty fun too. Um, um, and then we can do we can do we can do a hot debrief, but we also record it so we can go back and do a more in-depth dive ourselves into into it. And that's when you have instructors watching every move and all that sort of stuff. So that's that's pretty good too. That's such a good skill set. Just for the listeners, we've uh, we've had our uh, Tia Raps been able to to join us. We let everyone know that uh, you're on a call. It was pretty important there, Raf helping out a uh, someone in in a bit of need. So how are you going, mate? How how you doing? We've got Mark McCarthy who's joined us from Dubai. How you going, Raf? Oh, dude, I'm doing great. Uh, Mark, good to see you, man. Good to finally meet you, actually. You too, man. Yeah. You too. I love the posters. I know you were talking about it the other day, and I was like, oh, what are those? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. I didn't even think about that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because you're probably like, well, those dudes are a couple of see you next Tuesday, so I can't really believe anything they say. But for once, we can actually... You know, it's it's proven. <laughs> so, 
for the listeners, McCarthy's just put on his big Guinness uh, St. Patrick's Day hat, and and he's got a he's got a bunch of uh, Irish rugby gear on as well, and he has he's got his little leprechaun, so he's fully Irished up, and Raf is uh, wearing his uniform of choice as well. He's wearing a <laughs> a blue flannelette shirt. <laughs> he's scraped off most of the. Uh, the steel wool that gets welded to his face when he's going deep undercover in the inserts, and he's and he's in a cupboard where he does most of his recordings, with Wonder Woman over one shoulder and uh, the girl from Suicide Squad over the other. But it's good. It's good to see you, mate. A live a live join. We've not done one of these before. So Mark was just ta- he's just talking us through uh, just to recap for everyone a critical incident debriefing. So Mark's got a whole lot of um, background in uh, nursing, nurse training, uh, physician training. And they go through, uh, he's done some stuff on lived experience. He's written a paper there and he's doing, he does a, a, a skill set and training for uh, recapping and learning from critical incidents. And they do it either in the simulation with mannequins and so on, or they do a hot debrief on the spot when there's a critical incidents gone down with a, the first point is trying to get to consensus about what actually occurred because people with different experiences will have seen that same incident in the same way. So once you reach a consensus on what happens there, Mark, and I'm guessing that that's not just the, the, the loudest person who shouts the most gets to say what actually happened. There's a bit of a skill set there to develop that actual picture. How does that unfold? Yeah, so this is where, the, obviously, this is where simulation trumps the real-life situation, unless you've actually been in the room during the, during the actual incident in real life. But um, the... Uh, the, the simulation, it's on paper, it's recorded, you know, you can always refer back to it and say, you know, if there's, if there's an incident that you disagree about, you can always play it again and say, okay, guys, have a look at this. Now on the cold light of day, pressure's off, what do you think? And the reactions can be quite, can be quite interesting. Um, people can swear blind they didn't do something. And it's not a, it's not a negative thing or it's not a, they just maybe were so, overwhelmed with maybe emotion or stress or adrenaline that they actually had no idea what they were doing and it was it's crazy one incident i had was when i was actually doing my my trauma nurse uh, instructor training and the guy recorded me um uh, instructing the class and i had no idea i had this tick of going uh-huh um uh-huh um and he said look you're breaking up your sentences a lot i was like Really? Am I? And he, he played it back. I wanted to die. I kept on going with a pen in my hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Stress situations make you do the funniest things. It's it's crazy. That sounds like I was going to have a word to. That's Raph's little thing when he when we invite him to parties. That's that's Raph's kick. And I was going to say to you. I was going to say to you, Mark, everyone in the rugby team hated that that habit you have of doing that. It's just a continual thing we've learned to live with. But, you know, if you could work on that, that'd be really good, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. So once you've once you've gained consensus on what happened, what's the next step? You, you, you want to start when, if there's any emotion involved, obviously, um, <clears throat> particularly, like I said, if it's a child or uh, we've had colleagues come in from time to time. Uh, if it's a colleague, um, you know, some people may react stronger than others to certain situations. You know, a, a patient could look like somebody they know. It could remind them of a sibling, is stuff like that. 
and you, you always want to make sure that it's there's an emotionally safe space to kind of vent it off now it doesn't happen that often but like i said um emotions can be can be very strong and they can drive our actions massively um and I, i'll come back to that a, a little bit later maybe but um you want to just allow that safe space for them to to, to vent and um, even more so if there was an error involved in the situation you need to make it very very safe for that person to to be able to kind of express their their feeling about it um i tend not to deal with that side hugely um it's great if i can identify it but you, you want to refer that on to kind of professional people who really can can help and we we're, we're very lucky where we work we've got a lot of kind of support for that sort of stuff wow i i can't imagine what it would be like to be uh in that type of caring position and to make a mistake in which somebody's ultimately going to pay for it maybe you know temporarily permanently you know maybe fatally i i don't know but i i can't imagine the amount of pressure that a person would have to have but then also to be the environment where you could feel i don't want to say comfortable because i don't think that whole thing would be comfortable but that you could feel uh safe with going to someone and being like hey I know I made a mistake and I know what I did and being able to talk about it. So everybody learns from it. So it doesn't happen again. It must be so tough. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to, to give you the story. If that's all right with you guys. Sure. Yeah, mate. Um, so yeah, the, the, the story I have of kind of, that kind of leads into that end. The call bell went off. Uh, so we, we have call bells and uh, you know, it's like uh, the, the phone or the siren going off. Everyone scrambles. So we, we scrambled over to this uh, to this patient and a uh, young young person, um, which immediately puts the pressure on. And uh, they weren't doing so good. Um, and the uh, team rushed in and I, we were talking about it a little bit earlier on. Um, something in my head, as you said, same with the driving across the pressure plate. That little voice in the back of your head is just screaming, something's not right here, something's not right here. But of course, in the heat of the moment, you know, crash carts are being pulled in you know a young patient in the bed kind of going downhill pretty fast and you're 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 not really taking it all in but you are and i just kind of had this good feeling this is not a good situation um so we started we started doing our thing and doc came in and uh, asked us to drop some meds that would, would potentially save this person and i remember the meds being put down on the on the counter and by the person who drew them up and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know, for this, to this day, I still don't know why I did it. I, I haven't quite got broken down. I remember I need to pick up these meds and, and hold on to them because these are, these are dangerous, dangerous meds if they go wrong. So it was all a bit, bit panicky and patient wasn't really getting better with anything we did. So the order came to, to give medication, the medication I had in my hand. And uh, so check this double check this uh, doc gave the order to give it and there was something in me just screaming don't don't do it don't don't do it this isn't right so i checked with the doc are you sure you want to give it yet yeah. are you sure you want to give it yet yeah. three times i checked so we went ahead and gave it and uh, we do go through a, a checklist we do go through a five-point checklist right patient right dose right group you know right time and um, that sort of stuff so we we, we went ahead and i I pushed the I pushed the medication and uh, within seconds the patient just went into arrest. Bang, down. So uh, at that moment, just wanted the world to end 
ground open up, swallow me. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. Lucky we got the, we got the patient back, got them to the ED, but they ended up spending three days in the ICU. And, uh, that was a pretty sinking feeling, um, at that day. So then all of those things that I was just talking about, um, kind of had to start going through it myself and then, um, just blessed to have a really, really good manager at the time who, who had a very similar experience um, and was able to, to, to debrief me through it. But um, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, uh, and for any healthcare professionals out there who, who have had that experience, um, like I wasn't a new nurse at this stage. I had just been promoted into, into a specialist role for education. I was the guy who trained teams, who told them not to do these things. <laughs> So I had my teammates around me when this happened, you know, everyone saw it. There was no hiding from it. And yeah, it was just one of those things. Like you said, it's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, when your job is, is to take care of these people and they trust you, it's a pretty, it's a pretty dark place to end up in. So that's so what the, actually, what actually happened with the meds, Mark? Was it an incorrect dose or was it not? not it was one right? of those funny things where, where the dose was right. Um, but the route was wrong or if the route had been right, the dose, uh, would have been, uh, wrong. Uh, do you know what I mean? So it was one of those kind of situations. And there was also, there was also a thing playing in the back of my mind that I knew in this, in this serious situation that we could push this med through IV. Um, but the concentration was, was all wrong. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, Looking back on it, I'm not the first person to make this mistake. It's well documented throughout the world that, that this med is is particularly uh, dangerous. But yeah, I, I put that 20 something year old into ICU for for three days because of that accident. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty tough place to be. You know, it you, takes you, a lot to share these kinds of things, right? And the the three of us have certainly made our fair share of mistakes in critical critical occurrences like this when people are depending on you and it is a it is a big thing and to try and get the lesson out of it rather than just go into the suffering part or the being blamed or punishment part is a step that's very difficult to transition through so how did that unfold or how would you how would you train people to deal with that because obviously this is the key thing right like if we don't learn from our lessons we're going to do them again someone else is going to do them again if we don't document or people it's very you know, the, in, the instinct to, to want that thing to have not happened leads a lot of people to cover up that occurrence and it can lock in that that thing will happen again. Well, yeah, this is, this is the great thing. Well, like I said, I had a, I had a great, a great manager who debriefed me. So the first thing we looked at was like, what was it in your mind that, that was that little voice in the back of your head, that, that kind of good instinct that was screaming at you. So we, we, we kind of had to break it down and all the, as I was saying to, to, to you guys earlier on all the input that was that i was receiving and um, vital signs on the patient were looking okay so that was kind of throwing everybody off she wasn't behaving like the the condition we kind of thought she had but she was having problems and there was there was too many people in the room for a start there was no clear leader you know there was um there was meds going down that weren't fully labeled so there was there was multiple factors. So there was process factors. There was crowd control factors and the, the, the double check uh, with the doc. And 
partly my fault communication wise uh, when you ask three times you should really be saying stop 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 which didn't really happen but again you know you feel that internal pressure that this young person is is going through a severe crisis so when we looked at it we kind of broke it down and we did a root cause what we call a root cause analysis and um, realized that it wasn't just one factor and there was multiple factors involved and that's where the debriefing comes in i don't know if you guys talk about swiss cheese model yeah that's really popular in aviation uh the swiss cheese model i mean i've we've discussed that at at length through most of my aviation units uh, in the military. Guys, reason. Yeah, Mark, actually I have a question for you and I don't mean to cut you off, but I just kind of want to add to what you're talking about. Was one of those factors at any point, like maybe a sense of infallibility? And I don't mean like you're so like, like you just felt like, oh, you're just so good that that's not going to happen. But like, I guess, was that like, do you think back and think to myself, like, man, I, I'm always capable of making a mistake. So I always want to double check those things. Or, I mean, is that like something you, you think about constantly? Or is that something like you just thought it's such a basic, like, you know, sometimes these fundamentals are so basic that you should know those, like, you know, you, they should just be like in the back of your head, right? Like you shouldn't have to think about them, but I guess, is there a little bit of fallacy in that, that in a way that kind of gives you that sense of infallibility? Like, I'm not going to make that mistake, but then that's where it kind of sets you up for failure, right? Because it's such a basic fundamental. And I bring that up because in aviation, that will kill you, right? And I'm sure Paul uh, can, can attest to this. You, you sometimes you meet these individuals that you can just tell that they have the sense of infallibility. And I'm like, I don't want to fly with you because I can tell that you haven't been practicing the basics. And I can tell like you, you just think you've done this for so long that you think, oh, that'll never happen to me because it's never happened before. Right. It's just, it's such a scare. Like when you spot that, you're like, Ooh, I, I don't want to be like that. Right. Because I'm not that good. Mike knows he's seen me fly. I could barely oh. fly. <laughs> Damn right. I know. Uh, no, I, I, I think that uh, can be said for almost anything. I mean, I know I've felt that before. I mean, when I'm on the ground or I go out and, I, and I'm with guys that are just so overconfident or, you know, Hey man, have you thought about this? It's like, dude, I'm not thinking about that. Like that's, that's, that's JV, you know, I don't need to do that. I don't need to worry about that. And then you watch the guys go out, like something basic is like fast roping from a helicopter, right? Oh, dude, do like 50 fast ropes before I'm good, you know, and then they get out there and they fly down 50 feet and break their freaking ankle because they didn't hang onto the rope, right? They didn't prep them right. Or their gear, they had too much gear on. And now they're laid up for six months, shaking their head. And it's just like, was it worth it? you know, to take an extra two minutes or to review the basics or go whatever. Right. So I think that's, that, that can apply with anybody. I, I'm pretty sure. We'll throw a, uh, a link. We'll, we'll uh, stick a link onto a diagram showing the James reason uh, Swiss cheese model, which basically you have on the, the left side uh, structures and training and organizational factors that produce arrows and the arrows fly across the picture to the right. And if one of those arrows makes it all the way across, you can have an accident or a, a, a serious incident, perhaps a fatality. And there's layers of defenses between these error producing situations and the accident. And each layer is imperfect. So they're, they're, they're drawn as pieces of Swiss cheese. And if the arrows, you know, each layer might, might block say 50% and then you get a few arrows that go through. And if any of those uh, layers of Swiss cheese have all the holes line up. That's when the error-producing 
uh, situation will result in an accident. And so that's the basic overview of a Swiss cheese model there for the listeners. We'll stick a link to that. So root cause analysis, Mark, looking for all those systemic situations that are producing those errors, right? Like that's where the, the, the gravy and the meat is in all this sort of safety analysis. 100%. Um, to answer Ralph's question, yeah, um, I suppose just as you go through your career, you do kind of become a little bit more experienced, but it's these it's these episodes like this one, unfortunately got to the worst case scenario, but there's always those kind of incidents that check you a little bit, you know, when you are, your Icarus flying a little bit too close to the sun, you're like, Ooh, I came close there. Need to rein it in. And those are the incidents that you really want to be debriefing. The incident you don't want to be debriefing is, is the one where you, where you land somebody in ICU for three days because of, because of some action you made. So does that kind of answer that question? Um, yeah, there probably was an element of, you know, yeah, I've, I've been in this situation before and um, I can handle it. And that's why I, I took the meds. I was like, mm, this, is, this isn't safe. I'll, I'll take responsibility for that. But then at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, the, the error then comes on you when it, when it all happens. And um, it, was, it was really good though, because um, the team afterwards kind of came to me and said, look, it, if it wasn't for you, that med would have been pushed just straight fast and maybe that patient did wouldn't have survived she survived and she uh, she walked away there was no long-term damage thank whoever you you pray to up there but she she left um, in in good stead and no no long lasting repercussions so it was it was it was a good result but it could have been so much worse that was my next question is how how did your team respond to you owning up to like what you did and the ripple effect of that i mean have has that produced has that produced other people to be more open and, and be like, hey, I came close. Can we debrief this and kind of better the team and the environment? I think it has. Um, I'm a big fan of owning your mistakes. Um, and I, I think it goes both ways. I think there's kind of been, I think there's kind of, there's, there's been growth within the teams there, um, both sides. So they recognize you're fallible and, they understand that and you have to be human especially when you're kind of working slightly above somebody that's that's super for me that's super important like you, there, you have to be followed you have to be able to own your mistakes and most of the time people will respect that but um it has brought the team on you i i think if i and i'm just probably thinking what everybody else is thinking but i think owning your mistakes is an absolute sign of strength like i like if I was your counter, if I was working with you and you owned up to it, I would actually respect you that much more because I know that, you know, you wouldn't try to smoke screen some sort of mistake down the road. I mean, I would have absolute trust in you now. If you're willing yeah, to put it out, like they say, you want to put the ugly baby on the table. You want to look at it, right? Like, hey, man, this is the ugly baby. Let's look at it. Like, there's nothing we can do about it. And I would, I would want a guy like you in the trenches, man. I think one of the points here as well. So I just want to highlight the point here that. Mark has actually checked three times with the doctor about administering this me this medicine, and the person with the qualification said yes. And so, technically, you could say that Mark is not the one who's made the mistake. However, I think where we're going with this is, in these critical incidents, it could be in a special forces team, it could be in a, an aircraft crew, or it could be in a medical situation. I'm sure there's many others where one person has a key piece of information or a gut feel that's come from years of experience and training and expertise. And if that 
uh, concern is raised in the right way, it can avert the critical incident from occurring, despite the fact that, uh, as in, in this situation, the doctor or could be the captain of the aircraft is like, no, no, I know what to do. If a person in the team is empowered and trained and, and knows to trust their gut feel, they can speak up and bring that critical bit of information to the awareness of that leader and the decision can be made better. It, would that be a fair summary there, Mark? I think, yeah, the, you, it, the learning point for me is, is, is to, to kind of listen from, from the most junior to the most senior. If somebody raises, we, we often say um, the two challenge rule, that's something we use. If somebody challenges something twice, first time, if it passes, okay, maybe it wasn't huge, but if somebody challenges a second time and, you know, it's not a challenge as in, hey, you know, pointing fingers and raising voices, but if somebody says something a second time, it should be a hard stop. Like this person was concerned enough to, to raise this question twice. Now you either, you either address it and say, look, the reason I'm doing it is this, um, and this is my rationale for doing it. Does that explain it or make it better for you? Or, or you hard stop and everyone goes, okay, hands off. Let's let's have a look at this situation again. Um, and that's that's something they use in the OR. They use like timeouts and time-ins and uh, check-offs before they start any procedure. Um, so two challenge rule is something you can, you can look up and uh, have a look at. And it can be anybody. It's like your crew resource management. Anybody in the team can speak up at one point and say, hey, I really like there's a that. lot of training. There's a lot of training to develop young people to, to speak up. Talk about a cockpit gradient with a senior captain and a junior co-pilot. Qantas, for example, have a, a phrase. If the co-pilot says, captain, you must listen, it's a hard stop. And if that's, if that's said on the cockpit voice recorder and it's all recorded and the captain doesn't stop and have a full, like that hard stop debrief, that captain's going to be in serious, uh, there's going to be serious repercussions. So on, on this on this time, so the root cause analysis, how do, where does that go out of the debrief here, Mark? So that's kind of that's kind of at the at the far end when when something has gone wrong, you know. Um, the debrief really is to is to is to get to to kind of a general, like I said, general overview. What were your feelings? What were your emotions? The root cause analysis then is really like driving down and breaking it down into factors. Like I said, you know what was going on in the room. Uh, you know, meds being labeled, you know, all the little bits and pieces. Um, I, I try to identify, as you said, those, those Swiss, Swiss cheese holes and close them up. So it doesn't happen again. So for us, we, uh, we, we had a, we actually had an organizational look at, at how that med should be stored and administered in the future. So that was, that was one, one outcome for us. So it was good. And there should be continual process change in every organization. Like, cause I'm, I'm, uh, involved quite heavily with flight safety and there's never a procedure that's perfect and there's always ways to improve it and there's ways to train better and prepare better and and make a process you know more and more simple and intuitive and so on did you want to talk about that gut feel at all mark because i had an incident where i was on operations we had a four engine aircraft and we would shift the engines from low rpm to high rpm when before start, before takeoff. And we're actually going out to do a combat mission not far from where you are now, uh, Raf. And I just had this weird feel, a weird feeling of we sort of looked at each other in a flight station, just we're sort of taxiing to go. The aircraft's prep, the guys on the ground are waiting for us. And there was just something not quite right. And we shifted the engine down and back up from low RPM to high RPM a few times. And no one could say anything was wrong and all the gauges were good. And we ended up aborting, taxiing back, 
going for a spare and it's a mad rush now to get that second aircraft prepped and go because there's troops in contact. And we left and we didn't know that there was anything wrong. And there was a whole lot of questions. By the time we land, sort of 12 hours later, they'd done a boroscope on that, that engine. They got a camera inside and looked at it and it had thrown a couple of fan blades in the compressor. And so that thing spins at about 20,000 RPM. And if we set takeoff power on it, that engine would have failed, would have had a catastrophic failure during takeoff, possible engine fire. And so the guys did an engine change in the location. We continued. But this point is to, to say that those gut feelings that you have and those instincts are a sign of a processing that's occurring in your body that's a bit too fast to have articulated thoughts occur. But that when you've got a depth of experience and capability in a certain area, you don't need to have all of the zeros and ones that line up to have a really simple sentence. That if you've got experience, then you should trust that gut feel, that hairs on the back of the next sense that something's going wrong. If you've got enough experience in that area, that's a really, that's a sign that there's something going on that you need to bring your focal attention to and process at least. 100%. I'd, I'd be really interested to kind of go back in in that situation. As I said earlier on, like the subconscious is constantly on, even when we're asleep, it's switched on. I'd be really interested to know if it was just the sound that you heard. Was it just years yeah. and years of doing this? And was yeah. it just a slight change in pitch of a, of a buzzer? That's what it was. We figured out later, they did the maths and stuff. And it was like going from 72% to 100, it would hit a harmonic at like 82%. And just the airframe had a slight vibration for like a second. That was it. That was, that was all your subconscious coming in, just bombarding you with feedback that you couldn't quite, you couldn't quite process it rationally like um it, what we call the, the you know you look at the front brain that's the the logical uh, rational understanding but then you've got you if you break it down you've kind of got your emotional brain and you've got your computer in the background where it stores all that information and all that information of you revving hundreds of thousands of times was screaming at you going mate this this, this ain't right there's something wrong here you know, I experience that a lot too when I'm driving a government vehicle when I take it out of transpo and I hit 55 miles an hour on the highway and the thing's shaking and vibrating, uh, ready to it feels like it's ready to take off. I but you know what, this isn't right. I think I think my gut is telling me we should just get a rental car from Enterprise next time. You know, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people can relate to that when you know it's like, oh, how are we getting there? Govy. Ah. Can't do it. Should get a DeLorean. Get a DeLorean and hit 88. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where we're going, we don't need roads or safety. <laughs> well, I thought, so how do you try and... I thought it was because DeLoreans ahead, came with an eight ball of coke. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, how do you train people in this area of um, learning to process or trust that gut feel? Obviously, it was something that came up for you in this incident, and it came up for me, and I'm sure Raf and... Mike, both have had occurrences where that gut feel is 100% right. Yeah, like I said, we're chatting to Mike earlier about the about the IED plate and just going to that road and, you know, twice you asked the aircraft to, to do a, a scan and they were like, mate, there's nothing. It could have been the fact that birds weren't singing for you, Mike, you know, somebody would scared them off. Whatever it was, you, you know, it, something triggered in you, in your, in your subconscious and it was like, right, <laughs> this ain't right yeah it was the weirdest thing man and um 
you know, not just that, I mean, that situation, uh, a it could have been a thousand things, you know, and I could debrief and, uh, you know, long time later, I did think about possibilities that could have been, whether it was pressure plate, maybe they had a secondary that a dude with a battery was just sitting there and maybe he went to take a piss and I wasn't there when he connected the battery and completed the circuit. I, I, I'm, I don't know. Maybe he was banging a goat. I don't know what he was doing, but it could have been a thousand things, right? Um, moving past that, there was an incident, you know, kind of going back to one that I had, because I, I really find this interesting, man, about debriefing, because for this incident, I don't think I've really gone into great debrief about it. I went through a neurological debrief and like med checks and like whatever. But when I when I blacked out under the ship and, and sunk down and I was unconscious for, I was told a minute and a half. And I actually found something real, real interesting is I was talking to my buddy uh, Dave the other day, and he said, there's a medical study. It says, if you go unconscious, you have two minutes before your body instantly takes this deep breath of just like, <gasps> it, it needs oxygen. And they said I was out for about a minute and a half. So I had, I didn't drown. So I didn't have any water in my lungs, maybe for that reason. So I, I debriefing and talking about it, I kind of found that out. But in that instantaneous moment, it's, it, it was exactly was that it was a blink of an eye. I don't remember the minute and a half. I don't remember blacking out. I don't remember anything in between. It was just literally, I hit the surface. And the next thing I know, dudes are pulling stuff, grabbing me. And I'm like, you're screwing around. Like you're freaking messing with me. And they're looking at me and they're like, dude, you are not fine. And that's all I remember. So like debriefing and going back through it, I talked about what I could a little bit, but to get really in depth and really understand all what happened. Um, they have an idea what happened. It was like just, uh, there was a leak of, uh, a leak in my rig. So seawater was getting there. I was just breathing in and it like got O2 tox and it was just enough to put me lights out, you know, with expanding gases when I hit the surface and that was it. Um, but yeah, I, I think this kind of relates like going back and looking at all the different pieces and it could go back to prepping the rig, you know, of like somebody that, did a dive soup check on, on my rig and they're looking at my rig and two guys, like we have a two man role. So everything, whether it's, whether it's free fall, whether it's diving, whether it's whatever, you got to get two checks from two guys that are certified to do it. And somewhere along in there, it slipped through and, and maybe one person didn't go, Hey, is this okay? You know, and that could have been it. So. I, I think getting back to what you were asking, I think that's it exactly like hundred percent. Um, you go back and you try, you try and bring the the actions you did prior, the subconscious forward in the debrief. And that's where it goes back to those frames. What were you thinking? What were your thought processes? You know, what were you doing um five minutes before this? Um, you know, I, I if I recall that day, I remember it was a high pressure day. I and then the bell went off and it was like, oh of all things to happen. So, like, what, what was your mindset going in? And you guys probably talk about human factors as well uh, when, when you're flying. Like, was it, was it a Thursday? Had I just had a, a long, shitty week? Um, you know, was I on four night shifts? You know, what was going on? So, bringing all of that around the debrief is important as well. Maybe the guy who checked your rig, Mike, you know, <laughs> was the last thing he had to do before he went home. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's finding those, those things and fixing them for the future. That's, that's where the learning occurs. It's identifying that in yourself and, and bringing it forward into the future so you don't repeat that mistake. Now, to finish off the story, 
um, typical Irishman, like the longest story ever. A similar situation happened uh, about two months ago. Similar situation, same sort of thing going on. Um, this time we were in the emergency department. There was not a call out and the same order was given. Um, same, same thing. And I just said, look, mate, no, no way are we doing this. He's like, look, the doc was putting pressure on. He's like, you, you got to do it. This is the only way to save her, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no way, not at all. Um, so we took a different route. Um, they tried to set up a different kind of infusion this time. I was like, no, it's not on the system. And lucky we had a really positive outcome. But if it wasn't for that first situation, maybe the second situation would have been the one to catch me. So. Yeah, that that is, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between what we all do here special forces and combat and aviation and medical in these critical moments being able to have that it's a, it's a big thing to be able to put all the stuff on the table and really be honest but that honesty then equips you later it there's nothing to hide anymore there's no emotional attachment to what occurred and you can get down into the process and be like no 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 I've seen this before we don't do that. we don't do it like this we follow this flow chart or we look at these alternatives or a process has been put in a place like Qantas with their captain, you must listen so that the pressure is not on the individual. And imparting that to people under training, I guess, is what you're trying to do, Mark. So you get people who are totally happy to speak up and, and happy to, to raise their hand when they know a process or they feel a process is being uh, broken or, or a step is being missed. Is that the sort of stuff that you cover in your training, this um, yeah. critical incident debriefing? That's where you want to get to. You want everybody on the team to feel comfortable to say, hey, look, I'm not sure this is the case. Uh, absolutely. Um, that's that's the goal. But yeah, like we were talking about, yeah, that, that's where it wants to be. Like, And, and follow your gut because it, it is well established that there's, a, that there's a gut brain connection. It just so happens that your brain puts the feeling into your stomach and that's, that's why it's called a gut feeling, you know? Um, but it is all of those subconscious things. So listen to it. And uh, if you're not sure, do, do, do say it, challenge it, challenge it twice. And yeah, my advice would be don't do something if you're not too sure about it, or if you feel you're breaking protocol, you know, it's, um, but that's easy to say because we, 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 I kind of brought it in earlier on. It's um, about Dr. Steve Peters and the, the kind of the, the, the people you have in your head. I don't know if you want to go into that now or later. It's, it's up to you guys, you know. I reckon maybe we pick that one up in another one because we are, we're, we're getting close to uh, when people do need to move on. But just to sort of do a bit of a recap, we talked about critical incident debriefing from a very senior trauma nurse instructor, uh, Mark McCarthy, we have with us, talking about encountering people on their worst day, high pressure situations, uh, a lot of information going in and out, trying to figure out exactly what's going on and looking at, Debriefing, so using simulation where you can have an observer uh, recorder taking down time, date, actions uh, for a training scenario versus a hot debrief for a real scenario. And so the first step you talked about was recapping the situation and working through the question of did everybody see it the same? So different experiences and backgrounds, trying to work through to get consensus on what actually happened. So in the simulation, it's a bit easier when things are recorded and you can be surprised, as Mark said, seeing a, a nervous habit when you do see yourself filmed. The second step after recapping the situation was the emotional reaction. So there can be scenarios, as Mark described, with young people, children, colleagues, people you know, or just an emotional reaction has occurred due to the scenario and making that a safe space for someone to vent. 
especially if there's been a mistake made by that individual. And Mark shared a story about his young patient coming in, uh, Mark having a gut feel that something wasn't right and took a hold of uh, some, some medicine and then triple checked with a doctor who insisted that the meds were right. But that young patient went into arrest and recovered, but had three days in the ICU. And a reminder there that Mark was a senior nurse at this stage and had a lot of training. So then the debrief followed out, trying to draw out the process and CRM factors, communication, and that highlighting that if someone's asking anything three times, that should be a hard stop. So then working through a root cause analysis, a detailed breakdown into all the different factors that led to that uh, incident. And that Raf raised a point that you can, when you're experienced, have a sense that that, ex- that experience can lead to a sense of infallibility, that you do know what you're doing and you've seen this before. And you can be jumping over certain steps that need to be done. And uh, Mark referred to now they've got the second challenge rule, which is a hard stop if the question is asked twice. And we heard uh, Mike and I talking about occurrences when a gut feel was happening, perhaps in advance of the rational brain. Information is being processed. And when you've got that depth of experience in that area, that gut feel is 100% reliable. And all of this is being done in order to improve process and drive down risk and to improve uh, reactions and uh, outcomes. Would you say that's a a fair summary there, Mark? Are there any other points you wanted to leave the listeners with for today? I think that's that's it. Yeah, it's just, you know, all of these things, like I suppose at the end of the day, you can, we can talk about it later, but it massively influenced me in my personal life where, um, you know, I started to reflect a little bit more maybe about why I did. <laughs> why did we stay at the bar till 4am at the Irish village? You know, <laughs> what was our rational thinking there? No, but you know what I mean? You can bring it into your personal life. And I've noticed it's, it's made a big difference since I've kind of fallen across this stuff and kind of tried to implement it in a more, you know, personal way on a day-to-day basis. You know, I find that, you know, situations that maybe i would have flipped up before you you're you're a bit more rational now because there's more understanding the more you know about it the more you understand yourself and you know you can start to implement it for yourself which is which is a real positive it's not just professionalism it can it can it can be applied to every part of your life well i think i'm speaking for the three of us uh when i say that we probably want to have you back on mark i think that there's a lot of other stuff you've talked about choices in pressure scenarios and critical incident learning. And there's also some stuff you've uh, you shared with Mike and I beforehand about the uh, the gorilla and the chimpanzee that runs around inside my head. And I want to hear some more about that. So if, if it's not too much, we might have you back on for a repeat. We might run a, a, a couple of these just to draw out some of these lessons. And we might have to fill in some backstory on what exactly happened at the Irish Village that night, which is a, which is a pub just for everyone who's listening in Dubai. And Mark and I were there playing rugby at the Dubai Sevens. And at about 4 a.m., we found not at a rugby pitch so uh did you have anything else you wanted to throw in there uh tio any any observations or points for today's episode uh the only thing i was just thinking but there's just there's so much good content being thrown out from both bark mike and yourself that i think um the way you can really empower that process even more is if you got absolute buy-in from everyone in that team so i think um because i've seen that personally and especially flying Blackhawks where for a couple of years we started realizing because we were reviewing tapes and we started realizing that the backseaters which are usually some of the first to realize when the aircraft isn't in the right 
uh, state, I should say, like, let's say it's in a weird kind of angle or it's just, it's pitching in the wrong direction or, you know, the pilots are just screwing it up. I mean, literally the guys in the back and the ladies in the back were some of the first ones to be able to feel that. But we started noticing in the tapes that they weren't, they weren't saying anything. They just assumed that the pilots were going to correct the air that they were feeling. And so in army aviation specifically, we made a, a really significant push to make sure that everybody understood that, man, you, whether you're up front wiggling sticks or not, it doesn't really matter. You are a stakeholder. So I think kind of circling back to what Mark just said, I think getting buy-in from your team is just that much more potent for what you're trying to, to establish. I mean, if you, if you can get the buy-in now, you've really, you've really got those teeth, right? Like you really can do something significant as opposed to just an individual who really believes in it. Awesome. How about you then, Mike? You got any uh, insights or stuff that's come up for you during this one? Uh, Ref pretty much just covered it, but I would just close very short in saying uh, failure at some point is inevitable as human beings. It's, it's going to happen and not to push it away, but to embrace it because failure um, brings learning and you can't win without learning and you have to embrace it as the lower level, as the leader, especially uh, just accept that it's going to happen, learn from it, and then push on and win. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So like in aviation, after the, the engine fails or after the disasters occurred, you got to bring that aircraft back to land. Mike in the field in combat and, and errors occurred, he's got to get his team out of there and complete the mission, get his, his, men, his men and women back safely. And in this example with Mark, after that patient went into arrest, they had to do the actions immediately to get her safe again. So it's not like you can down tools just because an accident's happened and you can't lose your stuff. You've got to get on with it. So until until next week, from all of us to all of you guys, stay, stay safe, stay focused, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side.